Well, first, let me start off just by saying how thankful I am to be back. Uh, I love this church. I love what God has done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. Look, a piece of my heart will forever be attached to this family, to this body. Uh, It was a joy to serve here uh, for almost 11 years. Uh, God did an awful lot uh, of growing Torrin Scott up. Uh, while I was here uh, under the ministry of Ed and Jim and so many others. Uh, And man, it's just a real honor to be back. Uh, I bring with me greetings from Ridgepoint Community Church out in Holland. Uh, God continues to work uh, in us and through us as well to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to the lakeshore. Holland, of course, is the place that you go when you're really godly. And... uh, No, uh, God is at work, right? He's at work in us and among us, but not just us here. He's at work all throughout Grand Rapids in all the different churches, and his spirit is powerful and goes out to the churches out in Holland, and God is doing a work there and throughout the nation and throughout the world, and we're thankful that it's not just about us. It's about Christ in us, and Christ is the one doing the work, and it's a beautiful and awesome thing. Now, I grew up in a weird family. Uh, now, now, some of you are like, no, 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 I grew up in a weird family. And you're right, you did. But no, uh, my family was strange. My family was different than most families. You see, when I was growing up, my parents decided that uh, because Jesus loved the orphan, that they ought to love the orphan too. Makes a little bit of sense, huh? And so they started fostering children. And, and because of that, we wound up adopting a number of children. I'm the oldest of nine. I have six adopted brothers and sisters, all shapes and sizes, hair colors, eye colors, skin colors. We're all over the board. And it was fantastic. I loved it. Now, I remember when my brother Kelly was born. My brother Kelly is my only biological brother that I have. And when Kelly was born, he was born with some pretty severe developmental disabilities. And that was tough. I mean, no parent ever prays for something like that. It crushed my mom and dad. It was hard on us as kids. You start asking all kinds of questions in a moment like that. But God knew what he was doing. You see, because God actually took my little brother Kelly and he used him to lead us down a beautiful path. Now, it was a hard path. I won't lie to you, but it was... A beautiful path. You see, I know it's hard to think like, well, how does a a little boy with special needs that even now at the age of 30 is still unable to talk, how how does he lead a family? Well, if you've ever been around someone with special needs, you, you begin to understand the ways that they're able to lead you and the places that they can take you that nobody else could have taken. You see, God knew that little Kelly was going to actually take my family down a journey that was going to include loving and caring for a number of other special needs kids. And so uh, my mom and dad, um, when Kelly was a little bit older, decided that they would start fostering kids with uh, severe special needs. And uh, I told you, my family was different. I remember uh, one of my little sisters, we were sitting at the dinner table, right? And she had a tracheotomy. A tracheotomy means that you breathe through a hole in your neck. Okay. Now, when I clear my throat at the dinner table, <clears throat> all right, 
Nothing bad happens. When my sister clears her throat at the dinner table, <laughs> things go shooting out, okay? You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, we're covering plates, folks. Like, my family was different than most families, right? I had a sister that we had to put gloves on her hands in the middle of summer when she went to bed because she liked to pull out her hair and eat it, okay? My family was different than the average family. I had one little brother. His name was Richard, and he was just the cutest little kid. He had long, skinny little limbs. His body was racked with cerebral palsy, but... Anytime he had the chance, his face broke in half with a smile, right? Crazy thing. He looked just like Richard Pryor. If you could make Richard Pryor into a five-year-old, that's what he looked like. My family was different than most families. I, I had a little brother. His name was Cody, and he was the first little boy that my parents sensed a calling from God to adopt. Now, Cody was born with a, a number of different uh, uh, problems. He was born with spina bifida. That means that your spine is basically born outside of your body. And he was paralyzed from the hips down. Uh, he also had something called Arnold Chiari syndrome. That meant that his brain stem didn't go into the brain exactly where it should. And that meant that he had to have shunts in his head to drain off excess uh, brain fluid. And he also had a tracheotomy uh, as well. And Cody, though, was like the dynamite of our family. Right? I mean, he's the kid that it, it didn't matter how he felt or if he was in pain, like he was always happy. Like when you got home from school, Cody was the first person that you wanted to go see, get a kiss from Cody. He was always excited to see you. And I remember as being the oldest in the family, I had some responsibilities, right? I mean, I had to teach my younger brothers and sisters some words that I was not allowed to say myself, but that they could get away with. So I taught my brother Cody, I taught my brother Cody, he was so cute and innocent, he had no idea what this meant, but I taught him to say butt munch, okay? My parents did not think it was very funny, but I thought it was hilarious because he couldn't really say it, so he would say buck monk, and he would go around telling people, hi, buck monk, and he had no idea what he was saying, and they'd be like, oh, that's so cute, what's he saying? I'm like, I'm not telling you. <laughs> right, and he was so cute because the tracheotomy meant that he had this really raspy voice, kind of like a, uh, an 80-year-old woman who's been smoking from infancy. I mean, that's kind of what his voice sounded like, wrapped up in this little five-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy. My family was different, and I loved it. I loved every second of it. I thought that my family was phenomenal. I loved growing up with so much diversity and all the different things that I was able to experience. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it was easy, right? It wasn't just all, you know, ice cream sundaes and puppies and smiles. Like, it was hard. I can remember times when my parents couldn't come to uh, basketball games that I was playing at because uh, one of my other brothers and sisters was sick, or uh, a Christmas when one of my brothers was sick in the hospital down in Detroit and my mom had to stay down there with him while the rest of the family was at home in Flint. I, I can remember times when I wanted to be able to spend just some one-on-one -on -one time with my parents and it just wasn't possible. We had nurses at the house, sometimes 24 hours a day. There were machines going off and that was the the easy stuff, having to cover up your food at the table with your sister, right? I mean, like, we're getting into some territory where things were hard. But man, were they beautiful. I mean, my family was phenomenal. I loved my family. Hard, yes. Awesome, absolutely. I remember being in high school, though, and I, and I said to God, just kind of these conversations that you have I said, God, I love this, and I'm so thankful for my family, and I'm so thankful for my parents, but I will never do that. I mean, it wasn't so much that I wouldn't do it as though I said, God, I can't do that. You see, I saw how much it altered my parents' life. 
I saw the kind of love that they had, the kind of patience that they had, the kind of sacrifice that they gave, and I just said, I, I can't do that. Like, I'm so thankful for them, Lord, and God, would you raise up more people who can do that because I know that your heart is for the orphan, for the one who's not loved, so raise up more people, but God, that's, that's not me. I, I'm not capable, and I was right. If you have your Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Before we jump into our text this morning, I'd like to just do a quick brief history on where we've been. Now I'm making some assumptions here because I haven't been with you. But I'm guessing that Jim, as he's been walking you through 1 Samuel, there's a few things that you've learned. Okay? The first is that God's original and best plan for Israel was for God to lead them himself, right? That he was supposed to be their king. Okay, you probably learned that at the beginning of Samuel. However, due to Israel's selfishness, their demands, they asked for a human king. So the Lord agreed to rule Israel through a human king. You probably spent a lot of time looking at the life of Saul so far. Saul is the first king, and he completely fails in his kingship because he refuses to accept God's authority. At the end of the day, that's what it boiled down to, his authority or God's authority, and Saul could never quite get there, and Saul winds up being a colossal failure. Now, we come up to chapter 16, when David is introduced into the story. I'm guessing you guys have looked at this in the past week or two. 1 Samuel 16, David gets anointed as Saul's successor, and he enthusiastically embraces God's authority, right? He's called a man after God's own heart before we even meet him. Back in chapter 13, we find out that David's a man after God's own heart. We haven't even met David yet. We don't meet him until chapter 16. Chapter 16, the entire narrative from the author is vertical, okay? It starts with God and comes down to the world below, right? God is the one who instigates all the action, he is the one who speaks to Samuel in order to reveal his will, that David is the one to be anointed. Everything's happening on this vertical plane, God down to us. And then we get into chapter 17, and the narrator of 1 Samuel, the author, God says that, look, now it's going to be a horizontal discussion, right? David is the one who is taking the initiative. David is the one who is delivering the beautiful and penetrating speeches. In fact, some of the most beautiful and penetrating speeches we have in all of 1 and 2 Samuel. Now, that brings us into 1 Samuel 17 this morning, and we look, and it is the story of what? David and Goliath. I'd like just to take a moment to thank Jim for giving me such a you know, difficult passage that nobody's ever heard of before that's going to be so great to bring out new insights to you all. Right? I mean, sometimes these are like the hardest passages to teach on. In fact, I, I would wager that more people have heard the story of David and Goliath than even Jesus raising from the grave, as crazy as it is. We talk all the time about David and Goliath, right? You hear a sporting event, oh, this is a David versus Goliath. You know, it's all about the underdog. And we've heard the story so many times that it's easy to get to it and been like, yeah, been there, done that, seen that, heard that, click. Right? I mean, that's just a... It's something that we often do. Well, what I'm simply going to ask you to do is click, turn your minds back on, because I want us to take a little bit of time looking at the text, all right? Now, sometimes when we hear something so much, and then we actually look at the real thing, it surprises us. Uh, I remember about 10 years ago, uh, Brenda and I, my wife, we got a chance to go over to Paris 
We had some friends that were working over there for a couple of years, so free housing, you know what I'm saying? I was going to crash with them. And while we were there, we're like, look, we got to go to the Louvre, right? I mean, if you're in Paris, you got to go to the Louvre, you got to see. And what, of course, is the most famous painting in the Louvre? The Mona Lisa, exactly, right? The Mona Lisa, like, you got to go see the Mona Lisa. I've heard about it for, you know, ever, and it's amazing. And so we got there right at the very beginning of the day, right before the doors opened. As soon as the doors opened, we were in there. And our friend had been through, and she knew just exactly how to get back because it's way back in a corner. So we were like the first people to finally get there. And we walk up to the Mona Lisa, and it's this big. I'm like, where's the real one? Who put the miniature version of the moment? I'm like, this is so disappointing. I was expecting like some colossal painting that's gorgeous and masterful and beautiful. And I'm sure it's all those things for you art buffs, but I got to tell you, I was like, come on, are you kidding me? It's tiny. I mean, it's like this big. I also heard about the Grand Canyon. And about seven years ago, I had the chance to go to Arizona. And I'm there in Arizona. I'm thinking to myself, all right, I'm in Arizona. Probably ought to go up and see the Grand Canyon. Everybody says it's cool, blah, blah, blah. So I take a little trip up to the Grand Canyon, and I step out of the car, and I will tell you I was blown away. I mean, you, you, you can look at pictures all day long. You can look at videos all day long, but until you actually get there and see how grand it actually is, you will never understand. It blew my mind. The creator created something so majestic and beautiful and you're there and you just, it takes your breath away. But what I'm hoping today is that we have a little bit more of a Grand Canyon experience than a Mona Lisa experience, okay? So if you'll walk with me, we're gonna spend some time just reading through the story. It's such a good story. And then spending a little bit of time talking about what God wanted us to pull out of it. Verse one of chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Glad that's over. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. I read in one commentary that many of the nations at this time believed that Israel's God was like tough and strong on the hills. Like, you don't want to fight Israel on the hills. Their God is awesome up there, right? But if you get them down into the valleys, their God's not so good down there. So that's kind of what the Philistines are doing. They line up on one hill and Israel's on the other and they plan on having the battle down there in the valley. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. I'm reading out of the new NIV. I think many of you, if you're looking in your pew Bibles, it says, over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bear went ahead of him. Now, we just got to stop and really understand what this was like, okay? Goliath was probably about nine foot, nine inches tall. Now I'm about five eight, okay? Five nine when I'm lying. Uh, I'm probably about the size of David, okay? The average Israeli man, especially at this time, would have probably been my height, maybe even just a little bit shorter, all right? So 
the top of the plume up here that you're looking at is actually nine foot nine. Not, not the top of the head. Imagine a man whose head actually stood right up there, and now I am probably about David's height. Right? I mean, that's pretty amazing when you actually stop and look at it in this way. Now, it also says that he had on armor, right? This armor, 5,000 shekels, that's like 125 pounds of armor that this cat wore. This right here is a bar with 125 pounds. Oh my goodness, this is heavy. He walked around with this stuff, okay? Like it was nothing. Like he was wearing a light sweater. Okay, okay I'm done. Oh. Right, and then it said that he had a spear that had a point on it that was 15 pounds. I got right here a 12-pound sledgehammer, because it'll make a 15-pound, and a two-and-a-half-pound sledgehammer taped to that, and another half-pound hammer. So we've got 15 pounds, right? This is what it was like right here. This is what he held. Now, they say real men are able to hold it up with one hand. Yeah, I'm not even trying. Look, if you got hit with something like this, even without a point on it, it's going to do some damage. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like he could be a really bad throw and this thing could still take you out, okay? And yet he had a point. Like, Goliath was no joke. The text goes on in verse 8. And it says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out? Excuse me. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul, interesting that the author says Saul's name, and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. You see, Saul was actually known for being a head taller than all of his countrymen. Saul was the king. Saul was the one who was taller, like Goliath was taller. Saul is obviously the one who should be fighting Goliath. And yet Saul, just like the rest of his men who follow behind him, are dismayed and terrified. Verse 12 goes on to tell us that David is with his dad, hanging out at the family farm. He's hanging out with the sheep, being a shepherd. His dad comes to him and says, hey, David, I need you to go and bring some supplies to the front lines, get some information, bring it back to me. That brings us down to verse 20. Before we look at 20, though, verse 16. Note how long this has been happening, that Goliath's been coming out. Forty days, okay? Verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. <laughs> I love this, all right? The guys get up in the morning, and they're acting all tough and hard, right? Yo, who's ready to do some battle today? What up? Yeah, you ready? Let's get it all. Let's bring it out. They're going out chest bumping each other. Rawr! The war cry. But look what we just read in verse 16. It's been happening for 40 days. I mean, who's going to finally call the bluff, you know? I mean, kind of like, dude, seriously, just, just stop, okay? You're not fooling anybody. You're going to get out there. You're going to yell, and then you're just going to sit down, all right? 
You're scared to death. 21, Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. Then verse 28, Eliab, David's older brother, starts getting in David's face. David, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. You're just a little kid. Get out of here. This is for the men. We're going to fight. We're going to do this, okay? We don't need you around. And that brings us down to verse 30. (laughs) He then... Speaking of David, turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. I like to train protection dogs. I told you I was from a weird family. That's what happens. You get weird kids, okay? I like to train protection dogs. That's like police dogs, dogs that bite things, people, okay? That, that's something that I enjoy doing. I enjoy getting bitten uh, by dogs, okay? Now, uh, when you do this for a while, you start to learn some things about dogs. There's, there's a, a few different kinds, basically three different kinds of dogs. You've got dogs that are all show and no go, You know what I'm saying? Kind of like the Tom Olson of dogs. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, Tom. I'm kidding. So mean. So mean. All show and no go, right? The dog's out on the end of the leash. And you come up to him and go, ah. And the dog's like, ah. And runs back, okay? Then you got some dogs that they're like, no show but all go. Like, they just kind of sit there and you're like, oh, that's a nice dog. And all of a sudden, the dog goes, and nails you, right? Now, there are some dogs, though, the baddest of the bad dogs. Those are the dogs that are all show and all go. I had a friend who had bought a dog. The dog's name was Dingo. Dingo had been a GSG-9 dog. GSG-9 is the German Special Forces. This dog had done a number of tours with the Special Forces. I don't know how he wind up with them. Usually these dogs don't wind up in civilian hands, but he had this dog, and this dog was no joke. He was out on the end of the leash saying, I own this spot. This is my territory. You want to come inside? You will find out how true and real I am. And my friend did find out once, actually, uh, that this dog was no joke, right? Goliath is the dingo of his time, right? He's all show, all go. He's got the armor, right? He's got the weapons. He's tall. He's been trained from his youth to be a stone-cold killer. This is not his first rodeo. He knows how to handle himself. And David says, I'll take him. I'm not even worried about it. And Saul's like, he's been trained from his youth. You can't do this. So David has to explain, verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. 
This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So, uh, excuse me, Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then in verse 38, we find out that Saul tries to dress him up in his armor, right? He puts a helmet on him or something. It's like falling down over his eyes, you know. The armor's dragging behind him. David can barely see and walk. He's like, no, 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 no. I can't have this. He takes it off. He's like, look, God's the one that's going to save me, not armor. Verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. It's interesting the way that God lays this out, how he explains and kind of gives some of the commentary, right? I mean, like, he is glowing with health and handsome. Sounds like a 16-year-old kid going to get his, like, you know, school picture taken. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's kind of how, I'm sure David was older here, but he says, he said to David, verse 43, am I a dog? that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. That's not very nice, Goliath. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, this is when it's getting good, folks. I'm just giving you a heads up. Just giving it, this is when it gets good. He says, you come against me with the sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know Know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Ugh. That's actually in the Aramaic, that little grunt thing. It's a, you... Verse 48. As the Philistines moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. When the author of First and Second Samuel wrote this, there were some things that he wanted us to see some things that he wanted us to recognize, some ways that he plays David off of the rest of the characters in the story. You see, in verse 11, the Israelite troops, they see and hear an intimidating soldier from the Philistine camp who looks and sounds invincible. But in verse 36, David, however, hears and sees only blasphemous defiance of the armies of the living God. In verse 24, everybody else sees reasons for fear and hesitation. But in verse 32, David sees only reasons for taking immediate action. In verse 11, everybody sees despair. But in verse 26, David sees an opportunity for national vindication. You see, David is different because he sees with the heart of God. David doesn't see with human eyes. He sees with the eyes of faith. 
take a look at this picture. From this perspective, looking at this image, it looks as though there is a man holding the sun. If all you could ever see was this image right here, you would think that there is a large man holding the sun. But we know that true reality shows us that no man can hold the sun, only God can hold the sun. You see, if you're stuck looking at a human reality, if you're stuck looking through the eyes of a human, you will never recognize that he's not holding the sun. It's simply an illusion. God is holding the sun. Now, I remember after graduating high school thinking to myself, man, I I'm so thankful for the family that I grew up in, but God, I'm not going to do that. I, I can't do that. I think it's great, and I hope you raise it more, but it's not for me. And it didn't mean that I didn't care about the orphan, right? I did. I remember after I graduated from college, I had my first steady paycheck. I was still living well under the poverty line, but I had a steady paycheck. And so I decided that I was going to support a Compassion International child. And my wife was, uh, well, my girlfriend at the time was Filipino, so I had gone and was looking at this table full of all these names and faces, and I saw a little Filipino kid, and I'd love to tell you that I had spent like hours just praying, God, show me the right one. But I looked down, and there was this little kid named John Lennon. I'm not even kidding you, a Filipino kid named John Lennon. I'm like, that's my dude right there. So <laughs> I grabbed him, you know, and that, and that was great. That was great because I was like, God, I can do this. I'll do this, but uh -uh, I'm not doing that. That's for somebody else, somebody who can really handle it. That giant's too big for me. I can do this. Then I remember about five years later, I was in a conference. Uh, Tony Campola was speaking. I don't even remember what he was speaking on. It certainly was an adoption. And God spoke to my heart and said, I want you to adopt. Now, I didn't know who, when, where, what, why, but I sensed God say that. I was like, all right, that's fine. You know, I can do that. I'll adopt this type of child. But God, you know I'm not going over there, right? And then just a couple years ago, I was sitting right back over there. And I shared this story with you last time I was able to teach how God came and spoke to me that we were supposed to adopt a particular little boy. Now, this is when things got really Goliath for me. You see, I always knew that I wanted to adopt a little boy that was going to be able to do all the things that maybe all my other kids could do, right? Like, we're going to play sports together, and we're going to go riding roller coasters together, and, you know, maybe we'll train dogs and ride motorcycles when they get older, and all this stuff that, you know, my ideas of what's going to happen and who I'm willing to take, right? And God came and said, no, I want you to adopt this little boy. But this little boy had been born four months premature. And this little boy had a feeding tube, and this little boy had oxygen that he needed to have and was on heart and respiratory monitors. And this little boy, the doctor said, had an enlarged heart and wouldn't be able to play sports or go on roller coasters or do any of these other types of things that I wanted to do. This little boy had all kinds of what-ifs, like, hey, this might happen and this could be a potential and all these things. And I would love to tell you that in that moment, I ran to the battle line just as quick as David did, right? Right? And it's easy to chalk that up to youthful exuberance, right? Like, oh, Dave was just young. He didn't know any better, right? Jesus said we're supposed to count the cost before we build a building. And, you know, you're right. Absolutely, we should. But I think David did count the cost. <laughs> he saw a giant, right, that had been fighting since his youth, that had all kind of weapons and all kind of armor, and then he saw God. 
and said, oh, yep, okay, that one's a quick count, and he ran. And I would love to tell you that I had the same kind of courage, but my counting of the cost took a little bit longer. Still, at the end of the day, God, in his grace, reminded me that a proper perspective shows that he holds the sun, not a human. Look, I don't know what giant is shouting at you today. I don't know what giant is telling you that you can't do this. It's too big. It's going to cost too much. Maybe it's the giant of confession and repentance. Maybe you've had an affair and you think it's a secret and nobody knows. Maybe you're in the middle of dabbling in an affair. Maybe you've stolen something from your work, money, or time. And you say, well, I can't actually go and confess and repent. That's in my past. It's behind me. I'm just going to leave it there because it's just easier to deal with. The, the giant's too big. And Jesus is saying, look, I hold the sun. My grace is sufficient. Following me is better than deciding you can do it on your own. Maybe, maybe your giant is addiction. Maybe it's drugs or alcohol or food or porn. And you say, I can't beat that addiction because I've tried. I fought it and I fought it and I've tried and I've tried and it keeps kicking my tail. It's too much. It's too big. And what I'm saying is a proper perspective reveals the truth of God's word where Jesus says we have been set free from sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying there's some little button you can push some little pill you can take and everything just becomes easy peasy. But God is bigger than the giant of addiction. Uh, maybe it's foster care. Maybe it's adoption. Maybe you've sensed God calling you. Look, this is November. It's National Adoption Month. Maybe God's been tugging on your heart to, to be a foster parent. Some of you say, I can't do that. It's too big. It's too much. It's too life-altering. But God, God says, hey, don't forget, I hold the sun I hold the sun. There's all kinds of things that we could think about, right? Like William Wilberforce, 200 years ago, an Englishman sees the terrible effects of slavery, and once he becomes a believer, says, I've got to do something about this. I guarantee you, when he looked at slavery, he said, that's a giant that's too big. It's worldwide. It's the entire economy. I'll never be able to do anything. But he didn't. He said, I know who holds the sun. And so he fought his entire life, and three days before he died, the Abolition Act was passed in England, abolishing slavery. Maybe you think, yeah, but what can I do with AIDS orphans or the sex trade that's happening in our country and around the world right now or actual slavery that's taking place in so many countries? It's too big. I can't do anything. And I'm saying to you, look, who holds the sun? Do you believe? Will you believe? God wants us to see with the eyes of faith, the eyes that David had, right? Too many of us for too long have had a steady diet of spam steaks, right? You've grown up. It's all you've ever had. Every day, mom pulls it out of the freezer, cuts something off, slaps it down in the fryer, and you've been eating spam steak, and you're like, man, this is fine. It's all I've ever known. It's good. But then one day, somebody takes you to the chop house, 28-day <laughs> dry-aged filet mignon. What? 
You eat that, right? You're never going to be able to eat a spam steak again the rest of your life because it's so much better. That's exactly the kind of faith that God wants us to have. He says, don't get hung up. Don't get satisfied with spam steak faith. He says, I've got filet mignon faith for you, and it's so much better, and it's free. I'll provide it. You just have to trust, see with the right eyes, because when you do, you'll be able to do things that nobody else thinks you can actually accomplish. David did. You can too. I can. All of us can, but it requires eyes of faith. I'd like to close just by quoting from the great theologian Grover Levy, his drastically undervalued 1995 album release, Giants in the Land, where he said, he did not bring us out this far to take us back again. He brought us out to lead us into the promised land. Though there be giants in the land, we will not be afraid. Though there be giants in the land, we will not be afraid. Though there be giants in the land, we will not be afraid. Though there be giants in the land, we will not be afraid. He brought us out to lead us in to the promised land. Are you willing to believe the one who actually holds the sun? Or will you fall for the one who pretends to? Let's pray. God, we want to be people who believe with eyes of faith who recognize that you are the one who holds the sun. God, we want to be people who don't just believe that and see that, but who actually act on that. God, you're the one in control, and we can trust you with our lives. God, whatever giant might be facing us today, would you remind us that you are so much bigger, so much more powerful. And as Colossians 1.27 says, You are in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Indwelt with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, we all have it. Remind us that Christ in us is the hope of glory, and it's bigger than any giant we might face. We ask this in the beautiful, the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.